The White House has summoned China's ambassador to the U.S. to address concerns about military exercises around Taiwan. It's the latest in the fallout over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. It's Friday, August 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also coming up, several provisions aimed at reducing the cost of prescription drugs are included in the big Inflation Reduction Act now before Congress. We'll take a look at some of them. And Massachusetts lawmakers push to restrict MassHealth's ability to recoup funds after members die. Why in the world would MassHealth want to claw back or recover costs from the estates of those who are among the most low income and or people who are living with chronic disabilities? The heat wave continues through the weekend. It's 401. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. economy is coming off a month of much stronger than expected job growth, a whopping 528,000 jobs created last month. NPR's David Gura has more on today's Labor Department report that also reveals the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.5%. It's more than twice as many jobs as Wall Street expected and a huge surprise given the Fed Reserve has been hiking interest rates aggressively to try to slow down the U.S. economy. Now, this is a jobs market that is still hot. The unemployment rate and total employment are now back to where they were before the pandemic. But wage growth is still not keeping pace with the rate of inflation, which is at a 40-year high. The largest job gains were in leisure and hospitality, which added almost 100,000 jobs, and health care. There will be one more jobs report before the Fed's next meeting in September and new data on inflation next week. David Gura, NPR News. New York. Today's jobs report welcome news for a self-isolated president still recovering from COVID-19. President Biden donned aviators on the balcony of the White House residence as he talked about signing two measures to crack down on fraud and pandemic relief programs. Part of our plan is making sure that when we commit funds to help American small business, it actually goes to those small businesses they're supposed to go to. We know that the last administration, that's not what happened. Biden also briefly told reporters his administration was working to secure American Brittany Griner's release. The American basketball star is behind bars in Russia for drug smuggling and possession of cannabis oil. But there's renewed hope that Griner and another jailed American have a shot at coming home. And Russia's top diplomat says his country is open to the possibility of a prisoner swap with the U.S. Here's NPR's Charles Maines. At a regional ministerial meeting in Cambodia, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov addressed a question about Griner by noting a diplomatic channel for negotiations on prisoner exchanges between Moscow and Washington remained available. His comments came one day after Griner was sentenced to nine years in a Russian prison for bringing a small amount of medical cannabis oil into Russia. President Biden has condemned the ruling and offered what the White House calls a substantial proposal to the Kremlin in exchange for the release of Griner, as well as another jailed American, Marine veteran Paul Whelan. The Kremlin has suggested any prisoner swap could only happen once Griner's trial had run its course and through closed-door negotiations. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. East Coast thunderstorms are keeping tens of thousands of airline passengers grounded. The aviation tracking service FlightAware is reporting more than 1,100 flight cancellations as of this afternoon. The most heavily affected airports are in the New York area, JFK, LaGuardia, and Newark, and Reagan National in the D.C. area. At DCA, American Airlines reportedly has canceled more than 200 flights. Last night, a lightning strike right across the street from the White House killed two people and left two others in critical condition. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. 
For the second time this week, the MBTA has announced a major shutdown on the transit system. No Green Line trains will run between Government Center and Union Square for four weeks starting August 22nd. WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports. The shutdown is partly for work that's needed so the Green Line extension to Medford can open, and it largely overlaps with a month-long closure of the Orange Line. TGM Steve Poftak says shuttle buses will run on both lines and other options may be available. We're taking a look at what we can do on the commuter rail in terms of adding service. We think we have a sufficient number of buses, but we are still in conversations with a number of our municipal partners. The opening of the Medford branch is being delayed again from late summer to late November. Some workers on that project have been diverted to address safety problems elsewhere on the T as part of a federal review. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the upcoming closures on the Orange Line and Green Line will not be pretty. Speaking at an event today, Wu said she hopes the newly announced Green Line closure will allow for the efficient completion of the branch's extension to Medford. This will condense years of work into one sitting. Again, it's not ideal by any stretch for our Boston residents and workers and people, students, people coming back into the city, but we're going to do our best to make this work, and I'm hopeful that this means we'll see better service afterwards. The partial Green Line shutdown and the Orange Line closure are still a few weeks away, but another service suspension starts tomorrow. The T is shutting down the Green Line E branch from Copley to Heath Street through August 21st. It's for work to make improvements to the track. The MBTA says riders can use the Route 39 bus as an alternative. Be on the lookout for storms this afternoon. A strong storm is now over Concord, and that is moving east. It has strong wind gusts and heavy rain. In the forecast, we will have that rain coming around today, and that'll last probably until 9 o'clock tonight. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy. The lows will be around 74 degrees. Partly sunny, near 92 degrees tomorrow. Chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2. Mostly sunny, 95 degrees on Sunday with a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Mostly sunny with a chance of showers on Monday. The highs will be around 91 degrees. Right now, it's 88 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The fallout continues from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this week. China continues live-fire military drills around the island of Taiwan. And today, it announced sanctions on Pelosi and on members of her immediate family. Meanwhile, the White House summoned China's ambassador to express its concerns about these military drills and the risks of further escalation. To talk about the latest on these tensions, I'm joined now by NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez and NPR's Emily Fang, who covers China. Hey to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hey. Hey. Okay, so let's start with you, Franco. What was the White House position at this meeting with the Chinese ambassador today? You know, this is all part of a formal diplomatic protest, you know, condemning the escalating tensions. John Kirby, the spokesman for the National Security Council, told us this afternoon that the White House is trying to keep the lines of communication open. But he blamed China for the tensions, for using Pelosi's visit as an excuse for these exercises. Here's a bit how he described it. There's nothing here for the United States to rectify. The Chinese 
uh, can go a long way to taking the, the tensions down simply by stopping these provocative military exercises and ending the rhetoric. And he said the administration won't back down, and the United States has left an aircraft carrier in the region to monitor the situation. But he also said that the administration is delaying some ballistic missile tests that the United States had planned in order to prevent further misinterpretation. Okay. Emily, can you just catch us up here on, like, all the different ways China has been retaliating so far after Pelosi's trip to Taiwan? There's a lot. They've uh, responded on the diplomatic front, and they've also responded on a military front. So diplomatically in Beijing, the foreign ministry of China has summoned the U.S. ambassador there to dress him down. China's also uh, summoned ambassadors from the G7 countries, notably Japan. But the much more serious and alarming retaliation has been on the military front. China's in the second day of these military drills in six zones that, if you look on a map, completely encircle Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And these zones are chosen to block access to Taiwan's airports and naval ports. There's also been 10 Chinese destroyers sailing around Taiwan, dozens of Chinese fighter jets flying around the Taiwan Strait, and some of these planes, Taiwan says, are actually crossing the median dividing line onto Taiwan's side of the strait. Wow. But most alarmingly, Taiwan says China has test-fired at least 11 missiles that landed in waters around Taiwan. China and Taiwan technically are still in the middle of a civil war, but the last time missiles were fired towards Taiwan was in 1996, but they didn't land nearly as close to Taiwan as they did this week. I mean, how much more intense are we expecting this to get? Because this week, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, told NPR that he hopes China, quote, avoids the kind of escalation that could lead to a mistake or miscalculation. How much is China threatening escalation right now, Emily? They say there is a risk. It's put out an eight-point list today, cutting off what few remaining threads of U.S.-China cooperation still existed. And today, Jing Quan, a Chinese foreign ministry official in Washington, warned there could be more escalation. We have uh, pointed out that it is the U.S. side that is the troublemaker for peace and the stability of the Taiwan Strait and the region. It should not take escalating actions and make further mistakes. This is to avoid pushing China-US relations down the dangerous track of conflict. You've mentioned already these sanctions against Nancy Pelosi and her immediate family, but among other sanctions, China says it is cutting down any calls between defense leaders of the two countries. And this Mm. is really risky because during tense regional um, situations, analysts do say a high level of communication between military leaders and political leaders is key to preventing further escalation. Absolutely. But right now, there's no clear way forward because China's projecting this conflicting message. They say they want cooperation with the U.S., but they've now cut off all remaining channels. I mean, it's very confusing sometimes. Uh, Franco, something I've been wondering, did the White House actually approve of the speaker's visit? Like, were they happy with her going? (laughs) I mean, officially, the White House says that she had every right to make the trip. But there's no question that it made things more complicated. I mean, for days, John Kirby has been telling reporters that the U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. That policy is to acknowledge Beijing's view that it has sovereignty over Taiwan, even as the U.S. considers the island's status to be unsettled. But high-profile visits like that of Pelosi also send confusing signals. You know, the United States does have unofficial relations with Taiwan. It does a lot of trade with Taiwan. It sells weapons to Taiwan. And overall is a big champion of its democratic way of government. 
And Biden also has repeatedly said the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked. Though he's had to walk those statements back. Well, okay. something that I'm also curious about that we've mentioned already is the White House is saying it wants to keep lines of communication open with China. But I understand now, like some of the communication between the U.S. military and China's military has stopped. So how can these two sides actually keep talking? Yeah, the White House says there's still some communication going on between the two militaries. But Kirby says it is important that they be able to pick up the phone easily when needed. And China has cut off some talks with the administration on key issues like climate. That's traditionally been a topic where the two governments have had some engagement. And, you know, the White House hit back, charging Beijing with not just punishing the United States, but also punishing the world. John Kirby did express some optimism that the two superpowers would eventually resume some bilateral relations, but he said not now. He said the focus right now is on trying to reduce tensions in the Taiwan Strait. Well, Emily, where do you see the U.S.-China relationship going from here? It is on a complete standstill, even on issues that have zero connection to the tensions with Taiwan and China right now. Uh, that cooperation has stopped. For example, China said it was going to suspend all cooperation it had with the U.S. on combating narcotics enforcement, think fentanyl, much of which is ingredients come from China still. So expect any other progress in spheres like the media or cultural cooperation to stop as well. And what's really worrying is that these two countries are talking past one another about what they think the issues really are. China, as you just heard, characterizes the problem as the U.S. treating Taiwan like a country, but the U.S. says the problem is Chinese coercion. Uh, I will note the only people who don't seem worried right now about tensions are people in Taiwan, because basically <laughs> yeah. everyone I know there has been saying, we welcome Pelosi's visit. We've been living with the threat of invasion from China for over 70 years, and we're not worried about war. That is NPR's Emily Fang and Franco Ordonez. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Elsa. If you think your prescription drugs are too expensive, or if it bothers you that they cost more in this country than practically anywhere else in the world, listen up. The Senate could vote as soon as tomorrow on the Inflation Reduction Act, the huge package hashed out by Democratic senators. And it includes some significant changes to drug pricing and health insurance. NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us more. Hey, Selena. Hi, Ari. What are the highlights of this bill? Well, for the first time, the U.S. health secretary would be able to directly negotiate the price of certain expensive drugs in Medicare. This only applies to a few drugs a year. It doesn't start until 2026. But health policy experts say this is a big deal. Medicare has never been able to negotiate the price of drugs before. Also in this bill, seniors won't have to pay more than $2,000 a year out of pocket on prescriptions. So that's going to help people with conditions like cancer and multiple sclerosis. And if drug companies raise the price of their drugs faster than inflation, they have to pay a rebate to Medicare. So that's going to hopefully keep drug companies from raising their prices over and over. That sounds like big news for Medicare, for senior citizens. What about for those of us who are not yet retirement age? Well, this affects all of us because it's going to save the government an enormous amount of money, almost $300 billion through 2031. That's according to the Congressional Budget Office. So that's money the government won't be giving to drug companies that can be used for other things like climate and clean energy and other big initiatives. And it's also going to help pay for federal subsidies that are making health insurance plans that people buy on the Affordable Care Act marketplaces 
actually affordable, living up to the name. These are the Obamacare exchanges that were set up after the Affordable Care Act passed, right? Exactly. So there's healthcare.gov, which is the federal marketplace, and over a dozen state-run marketplaces. So people who don't get insurance through work and don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid can just go into these marketplaces and buy a plan. Last year, because of the pandemic, Congress put billions of dollars towards essentially giving people discounts on their premiums. The Biden administration said four out of five enrollees qualified for plans that were $10 or less per month. That's, Hmm. you know, pretty affordable. And it seems to have made a difference. 14 million people signed up during open enrollment last fall. That is the most ever. And it's probably one of the reasons the percentage of Americans who are uninsured dropped to a record low in the first few months of this year. Only 8% of Americans are uninsured right now. That's the lowest it has ever been. It means 92% of Americans have health insurance. Wow, the highest percentage ever. So this bill is poised to pass with no Republican support. They're all expected to vote against it. What's the objection? Well, Republicans don't like these extra subsidies from the federal government. They say that it makes people too dependent on the government and that some of the people benefiting might be high income. But they especially object to the health secretary negotiating the price of drugs in Medicare. They say it's government price setting. And they argue that it will lead to fewer cures coming to market because it will reduce the revenue coming into drug makers that they can then use for research and development of new drugs. However, the Congressional Budget Office estimates only about 1% of drugs that would be developed over the next 30 years won't come to market because of this reduced revenue. And voters really want to see Congress do something about the cost of prescription drugs and health insurance premiums. They don't seem to be buying these doomsday arguments. In a Kaiser Family Foundation poll from last fall on Medicare negotiation, 90 percent of Republicans agreed with the statement, quote, even if U.S. prices were lower, drug companies would still make enough money to invest in the research needed to develop new drugs. 90 percent of Republicans said that. Yes. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, Republican candidates for public office are now commonly refusing to grant access to reporters from mainstream national news media, often speaking to friendly partisan press instead. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. CitysideSubaru.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In business news, on the same day it was announced iRobot will be bought by Amazon, the Bedford company is reporting it will cut its worldwide workforce by 10%. That's 140 employees. As part of the effort to cut costs, iRobot says it's going to move some of its operations to regions where it says business operations will be cheaper. iRobot, which makes the Roomba vacuum, indicates it is keeping its engineering operation here in Massachusetts. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. The Dow finished up 67 points at 32,794. NASDAQ fell 67 points at 12,653. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. In the forecast, we have a severe thunderstorm warning until 5 o'clock for Boston, Cambridge, and Newton. It will be lows tonight around 74 degrees, partly sunny, near 92 degrees tomorrow. Chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2. Mostly sunny, 95 degrees on Sunday with a slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it, right now it is 79 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. For decades, conservatives have perceived the mainstream press as biased against them. Donald Trump dubbed reporters the enemy of the people. And this year, a lot of Republicans running for office are simply shunning mainstream press on the campaign trail. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has more. I went to Wisconsin in June to report on how abortion is affecting primaries there. The idea was to do one story on the Democrats and one on the Republicans. Long story short, after phone calls, emails, Facebook messages, I heard back from the Democrats, but not the Republicans. The top GOP governor candidates posted no events, though their social media showed they were out talking to voters. And so, when I happened to catch the top two GOP governor candidates walking in an Oconomowoc July 4th parade, I hurried to the end of the route. I found former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish greeting supporters. Her staff started brushing me back, so I called her name. I'm sorry. No, no, we're not doing any questions. I know you've been in contact with our communications director, Alec. Yeah, that would be the no best way. Response. I'm I've sorry about that. Every possible way. I'm sorry Is about Alec that. Here? Um, he just took off. Eric. So sorry. Eric. I'm sorry. Can you tell him to get back to me? Yes. He did not, and a day later, at a publicly advertised event for Republican Kevin Nicholson, a staffer told me I wouldn't be allowed to record the candidate. As standalone anecdotes, these might not be a huge deal. However, they are also part of a trend of Republican candidates ignoring or actively avoiding legacy media, particularly national outlets. Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano kept the press out of a rally this spring. Reporters on why they couldn't get in. They don't want any media in, into the facility. Can you just tell us who they is? The campaign? The Mastriano campaign. Yes. Told you that. Like if I had a wedding and a whole bunch of these came in for the wedding, well, we I'd stop you here too. They're, well. they're not running for There's a But still, it's a private event. It's not a... It it's public a public office. office. <laughs> Recently, the Florida GOP barred many mainstream outlets from the party's Sunshine Summit, but allowed in conservative outlets. Dave Weigel is the author of the Washington Post's campaign newsletter, The Trailer, and was not allowed in. If uh, one person from the campaign tweeting a photo from inside the room and talking about how great the view is that journalists can't see, most people who will not answer my basic questions, like, is there a recording of this event? <laughs> are taking the time to make fun of reporters for going there and getting engagement on Twitter for that. As the Republican base increasingly gets their news from right-leaning news sources, Republican candidates increasingly grant access primarily to those sources, 
meaning fewer news outlets can provide a broad view of American politics, not to mention scrutiny. It is entirely true that Democratic candidates also dodge questions and have private events. It's also true that GOP distrust of media is decades old. Vice President Spiro Agnew, for example, famously lambasted media coverage of Richard Nixon in 1969. But to Weigel, something is different this year. In this cycle, I've started to see more Republican candidates avoiding the press, blocking the press from events, and taking advantage of the fact that there's conservative media that will ask different questions and has a different audience. Um, So I'm obviously (laughs) not saying to the world, stop talking to the media. I'm saying, just objectively, there is a media infrastructure built up so that you don't need, if you're a Republican candidate, to talk to us. Scott Jennings, a Republican strategist and CNN commentator, said there's a cost-benefit analysis in talking to the press. He asked, what is the benefit of doing a potentially adversarial interview with an outlet you find biased? The possibility that you might end up saying something that winds up in $10 million worth of ads from the other side. (laughs) You know, it's like the benefit of doing the interview does not outweigh the risk. And so, You just don't do it. And in this cycle, that can mean avoiding any number of tough questions about January 6th or abortion, for example. Polling data shows a wide media trust gap. Just 11 percent of Republicans trust the mass media, compared to nearly 7 in 10 Democrats, according to Gallup. The question of liberal bias isn't something we can settle in a few minutes. And coming from a legacy media outlet, a claim that we aim to be unbiased would inevitably come off to some as, well, biased. But regardless, claims of liberal bias are themselves a political tactic. Case in point, Donald Trump. We are in a rigged system, and a big part of the rigging are these dishonest people in the media. And you can't find it at the Washington Post, the New York Times, because they're crooked, they're dishonest. CNN, how dishonest is CNN? Or the Washington Post which I call a lobbying tool for Amazon, okay? That's a lobbying tool for Amazon. And now, that hostility to the media is central to many other Republicans' identities. Here's Jennings again. In the old days, you would go through this, and and your assumption would be, well, if a national newspaper is putting a negative story out on it, we, we have to engage with it. Now, I think it's actually different in that you might engage, but you might also make the determination that if you're a Republican, well, if the New York Times runs a hit piece on me, that's a badge of honor. Mainstream news also doesn't have the broad reach it once did. If, say, the national evening news is losing eyes and ears to right-wing outlets, there's less reason for candidates to respond. There are nuances to this, though. It's not every candidate, and they're not avoiding every mainstream outlet. Many candidates are more likely to be friendly to local than national press, says Mark Harris, a Pennsylvania-based Republican strategist. The best thing you can still do is get a six o'clock local, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS TV news hit. Local TV is number one and local print is number two. NPR contacted several political reporters from around the country and found a range of experiences. One in Texas reported nothing out of the ordinary this year. A political reporter in Iowa said they're seeing some evidence of Republicans avoiding scrutiny, which from local press can often get at issues more immediate to voters' lives. Alex Burness, who recently left the Denver Post, said he sees a definite partisan difference. He described a recent event for Republican governor candidate Heidi Ganahl. They said at the onset, we're not taking any questions. And we in the little media area had a conversation before she went on, like, well, why are we here? Right. Like, I'm we're not here to 
give PR. That kind of question is important for reporters to consider, says Khadija Costley-White, a professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. Is it important to have voices, regardless of whether or not they're using that opportunity as a way to distribute disinformation or misinformation? Is that valuable to democracy? All of this may come off as, boo-hoo, the GOP won't talk to reporters. But many, including Jennings, are concerned about what this all means for accountability. You know, I'm a Republican communications guy and engage with the traditional media and am on CNN. So I, I say I say this with all sincerity. We have to have a trusted press and it's necessary. Like, it's necessary to democracy. However, candidates aren't incentivized to talk to the press because democracy. They talk because it serves their interests. The question is where this all leads. Here's Weigel again. Look, I'm not saying how dare they do this. I'm interested in where this is going. If we're returning to the days when Democrats have one newspaper, Republicans have another newspaper, we might not like that, but there's precedent for it. At any rate, I never did do that piece on Wisconsin Republicans. I simply didn't have enough people to talk to me. If that's true for enough outlets, it means uneven coverage of the two parties and an electorate that has to work ever harder to be fully informed. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 74 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, a conversation with retired Marine Corps General Frank McKenzie about the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan to the Taliban one year later. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. Some severe thunderstorm warning in for Suffolk, Middlesex, and Norfolk counties until 5 p.m. today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. Events, book recommendations, story hours, and more in the Seaport District. PorterSquareBooks.com. Great novelist Marianne Wiggins suffered a devastating stroke in 2016. But with her daughter's help, she was able to finish her latest novel. I feel guilty as a mother to have put her in this position, but she has saved my life. Yes. And she saved the book first, then she saved my life. Our conversation Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Employers added a whopping 528,000 jobs last month, more than twice as many as forecast by economists. The U.S. job market has proven to be extremely strong, despite high inflation and slowing economic growth. That latest uh, report from the Labor Department gives the Biden administration some positive momentum heading into the midterm elections. Here's NPR's Scott Horsley. It's pretty clear the U.S. is not in a recession right now. Uh, that's despite last week's GDP report, which showed the economy shrank during the spring for the second quarter in a row. There is an old rule of thumb that two consecutive quarters of falling GDP often signals a recession. But as Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said last week, it's just hard to square that with an economy that's added more than three million jobs this year. The economy has now replaced all of the jobs that were lost in the early months of the pandemic. Unemployment fell to 3.5 percent, matching the lowest level in decades. The Fed may still have to act more aggressively to control high inflation. 
Russian and Turkish leaders held a lengthy meeting today with Turkey agreeing to partially switch payments for Russian gas to the ruble. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the leaders also agreed to cooperate in counterterrorism efforts in Syria. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had allotted 45 minutes for the meeting, but it ran to some four hours. There was no post-meeting news conference, but a joint statement released following the meeting said Erdogan and Putin agreed to work together on counterterrorism measures in Syria. Erdogan has threatened to launch a cross-border operation to clear Syrian Kurdish fighters away from the Turkish border. The meeting follows an accord brokered by the U.N. that allows Ukrainian grain and some Russian products to transit the Bosporus Strait to international markets. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. On Wall Street, stocks finish mostly lower on Wall Street today. This is NPR. Record-breaking temperatures are hitting across the country and in New England. The stifling heat is expected to continue through the weekend. From member station WBUR, Ali Jarmanning has more. Beaches across Massachusetts have been packed throughout the latest heat wave, and those who have to work outside are finding ways to cope. Erin Shea works just steps from the beach as a parking lot attendant. Armed with sunblock, water, and a good book, she doesn't mind the heat. We're going to have to remember days like this when it's February and we're dreading the snow. So we'll be wishing for these days when it's cold. Boston's Logan Airport hit a record high temperature of 98 degrees on Thursday. The region is expected to see above 90 degree temps throughout the weekend. For NPR News, I'm Allie Germanning in Hall, Massachusetts. Three more ships carrying thousands of tons of corn have left Ukrainian ports today. The U.N. and Turkey negotiated a deal to export grain trapped since Russia invaded Ukraine nearly six months ago. While those shipments have bolstered hopes of easing a global food crisis, major hurdles remain getting that food to the countries that need it most. Experts say much of the grain Ukraine is trying to ship right now is used for animal feed, not for, pe- not for people to eat. On Wall Street, uh, a mixed bag. Stocks. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Some wild weather is hitting the Boston area. The National Weather Service has a severe thunderstorm warning posted for Suffolk County and parts of Middlesex and Norfolk counties. Radar indicates 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts and hail the size of a penny. The severe thunderstorm warning is in effect until 5 p.m. Two major sections of the MBTA will be shut down at about the same time as the system scrambles to improve safety and complete a long-delayed project. Today, the T announced shuttle buses will replace regular service on the Green Line between Government Center and Union Square for about four weeks. It will allow the work to be completed on the Green Line's extension Medford branch. This will happen about the same time the entire Orange Line is closed for upgrades MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says the shutdowns will allow the T to improve the system quickly. I'm asking folks to be patient and to allow us to make some of these bold and decisive decisions. Rather than stringing out some of these construction projects literally for years, we're going to be able to get them done efficiently. The partial green line closure will be from August 22nd through September 18th. The orange line will shut down on August 19th for 30 days. The city of Medford is being directly impacted by the shutdowns. Mayor Brianna Lungo-Kern says another delay in the opening of the Medford branch of the green line is also tough to take. 
I appreciate the tea trying to make changes and maintain equipment and keep the tea safe, but I'm frustrated. I, I would wish this was information was given to us sooner. The MBTA says it's considering a request from Longo Kern to and the mayors of Melrose and Malden to add more express buses and to run the commuter rail more frequently during the shutdowns. State environmental officials are warning about increased ozone levels in greater Boston through this 11 o'clock this evening. Uh, This is the second air quality alert issued for the area in as many days. Mass Department of Environmental Protection spokesperson Ed Coletta says despite growing concerns related to the heat and climate change, the region has seen a decrease in high ozone levels in recent decades. You know, we're, you know, we're trending in the right direction, at least as far as having fewer ozone exceedance days uh, these days compared to, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago. So we're hoping that that trend continues, obviously. Coletta says that's in part due to reduced industrial emissions in the area. High ozone levels can have a negative health impact on people, especially those with respiratory issues. Tomorrow, part of Blue Hill Avenue in Roxbury will be closed to traffic and open to pedestrians. The city is hosting an open streets event between Dudley and Warren Streets. Cars will be replaced with musicians, food trucks, a roller rink, and misting tents. The city says open streets events help bring neighbors together and support local businesses. In the forecast, that severe thunderstorm warning, including Boston, Cambridge, and Newton, will be here till about 5 o'clock. Chance of showers and thunderstorms before 9 tonight, otherwise mostly cloudy. The lows will be around 74 degrees. Partly sunny, near 92 degrees tomorrow. Chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 o'clock. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between. Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. One year ago, last August, as city after city in Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, Frank McKinsey was watching from his post in Tampa, Florida. McKinsey was in regular contact with U.S. forces on the ground in Afghanistan. He was overseeing their orders. This is because Frank McKinsey is General McKinsey. Marine Corps, four-star, at the time the commander of U.S. Central Command, so in charge of all U.S. military operations in East Africa, the Middle East, and beyond. He retired from command this past April, and he joins us now. General, welcome. Thanks, Mary Louise. I'm I'm glad to join you today. As the Taliban got closer and closer to Kabul and, and the U.S. Embassy and the International Airport, were you in communication with them? Was there a conversation in which you might have been able to say, hey, look, we're leaving, just stay out of Kabul, stay away from the airport so we can draw down, get our people out in an orderly way. So yes, I actually flew to Doha on the 15th of August to talk to the Taliban, to tell them that we were in fact going to withdraw. We were going to execute a non-combatant evacuation operation, a NEO in our technical lexicon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if they interfered with that, we would punish them severely. 
And I delivered that message to them in Doha on the 15th. They were actually receptive to that message. And let me be very clear. I don't trust the Taliban. I have long experience with them. I don't believe they keep their word. But in this particular case, we shared an interest. We wanted to leave and they wanted us, they wanted us to leave. So in that very transactional momentary period of time, they did not interfere with our withdrawal. And I thought that was, I thought that was very significant uh, and probably allowed us to do it in the manner that we did it. Sorry, you said that was the 15th of August? That was the 15th of August. And Kabul fell on that day. Yeah. When I was going out to uh, Doha, the plan was to try to get the Taliban to stop at a perimeter, maybe 15 or 20 kilometers outside the city, a ring around it. We, we wanted them to not come any closer until we pulled our forces out. Well, by the time I got there, they were already in downtown Kabul. So that plan was no longer operative, but they continued to be receptive. And so I left that meeting with what I needed to have, which was we were going to be able to execute our plan to get our people out and as many other people as we could. The Taliban were not going to interfere with us. And we had, in fact, established a modality where my commanders on the ground could talk to them about security issues in the vicinity of the airport. So we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish in that meeting. So then what happened? Because obviously you were not able to get everybody out in an orderly way. Absolutely. We were not able to do that. And that's something that haunts me to this day. So uh, as you know, we began, we had forces that were around the airport on the 15th and 16th. Mm -hmm. I actually visited uh, the airport on the 17th of August. I was on the ground, walked around a little bit, saw some of the, some, saw some of the things that were going on. And what you've got is it's a capacity problem. You've got to process all these people. It took a while, frankly, for our counselor officials to get there and the numbers needed to handle the press of people that were outside. So no, we did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. You know, we got well over 120,000 people out. And that's a good news story. The bad news story, and I would never try to deny it, is we did not get everybody out that we wanted, particularly a lot of Afghans that had helped us down through the years, that have been partners of ours, often in combat, often in other very demanding times. They had every expectation that we would bring them out. We did not, and we were unable to do that. And that's something that, as I noted earlier, still haunts me to this day. Yeah. You've started to answer this, but I just want to put what I suppose is the central question one year on. I mean, the withdrawal was, and I mean this not disrespectfully, but I'm just going to say it, it was widely considered a disaster. With the benefit of a year of hindsight, is there something specifically you wish had been done differently, you wish you had done differently to prevent that? Well, anytime American soldiers, sailors, Marines lose their lives, you, you spend a lot of time thinking about decisions that you could have made and done differently. So yes, I think about that quite a bit from the perspective of right at the end, what could we have done differently? What we should have done was we should have begun to bring people out much earlier mm. rather than waiting till the very end. And by and that would have been in the spring even, we should have begun to do that. Now, the problem with that is that's an interesting counterfactual, but you've got the government of Afghanistan that's saying, look, the people that you're bringing out are the best people in Afghanistan. If you want us to fight, you can't let these people go out. Who bears responsibility for that decision, for the way it all unfolded? Ultimately, the chain of command does. We, that was a national decision, decision made by the president, and we executed that decision. We had an opportunity to, to discuss it. We had an opportunity to give input. The president made a decision and we executed it. I want to bring us up to present. The killing this week of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri by a U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan. Administration officials say that was a CIA drone strike. And I wonder what that says about the role of the U.S. military now. I mean, it, the military has gone from Afghanistan. Do operations like that one going forward, will they fall exclusively to the CIA? 
Central Command still maintains overhead presence in Afghanistan with uh, unmanned aerial platforms, just as the CIA does. We look at threat streams against the homeland of the United States. You know, we've said all along that we believe that a collapse of the government of Afghanistan and the installation of the Taliban would probably result in the resurgence of both al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I believe that is the case, and we're seeing that in progress right now. I think it clearly shows the complicity of the, the Taliban and al-Qaeda. It clearly shows that the Taliban negotiated in bad faith on the Doha agreement. You're reminding me of a question I put this week to Jake Sullivan, the White House National Security Advisor. I spoke to him right after the Zawahiri strike and said the U.S. went into Afghanistan in the first place to take out al-Qaeda leadership after 9-11 and then fought for 20 years to prevent al-Qaeda from reestablishing a base there. The fact that Zawahiri and his family turn up living in downtown Kabul, what does that say about what the U.S. managed to achieve over those two decades in Afghanistan? Well, from my personal perspective, Mary Louise, I think we took our eye off the ball in Afghanistan, why we were there to prevent al-Qaeda from striking our country. Over the, over the course of our engagement over two decades, it grew into something much larger, an attempt to impose a, you know, a form of government, a state that would be a state the way that we recognize a state. I would tell you, I don't believe Afghanistan is ungovernable. I believe Afghanistan is ungovernable with the Western model that we imposed on it. And so I think that's sort of what that's sort of what draws out to me. We, we lost track of why we were there and we did not keep the main thing, the main thing being being preventing al-Qaeda from being able to gather strength and conduct attacks against us and ISIS, too, once it began to manifest itself in Afghanistan. Clearly, you need an Afghan military to help you do that. But I think we grew far beyond the original scope and scale of our mission, the original mission. Last question, General, which is, I just wonder if there's anything, you know, one year on that you would want to say to the people of Afghanistan, anything you would want them to know from a former CENTCOM commander? Well, I think this is now a tough time for the people of Afghanistan. I think that they're not well served by the by the Taliban that's in there. The Taliban were never really a particularly popular party in Afghanistan, although they were able to to merge religious and other affiliations in a way that the government was never able to do. I think it's going to be a very tough time. I regret what happened last summer. I regret the, that we're unable to provide a form of government that would allow for the development of human rights, women's issues, a variety of things, all of which are being, as you know, systematically deconstructed by the Taliban right now. And I fear it's going to get much, much worse before it gets any better. General Frank McKenzie, he's the former commander of U.S. Central Command, speaking to us today from Florida. General, thank you very much. Thank you, Mary Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. GDP, that's gross domestic product, sums up the size of our economy in a single number. And when the GDP declines two quarters in a row, like it did in the first half of this year, that meets the common definition of a recession. But now a group of economists have come up with a different way to evaluate the health of an economy. As Greg Rosalski and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain, you can think of it as GDP, the remix. Gabriel Zuckman is part of a trio of economists trying to revolutionize GDP, along with Thomas Blanchett and Emmanuel Saez. The big problem is that GDP data doesn't tell you who is benefiting from economic growth. They offer a new GDP prototype, you know, the remix. 
This prototype breaks down data on economic growth and sees where the gains from that growth are going. They publish it all on a website called realtimeinequality.org. Now, here in the U.S., of course, we already have a ton of data on inequality. The problem, Gabriel says, is that it usually takes a year or two for this data to be updated. Part of the motivation for this project was the COVID-19 pandemic, where you have this dramatic crisis and economic shock, and policymakers are in the dark, you know, to some extent. Like, you know, is it enough? So to follow where all these slices of economic pie are going, Gabriel and his colleagues have pioneered a method to compute how different income groups are doing economically way quicker than has been done before. This prototype can already tell some really important things about the recent past. One very striking illustration is what happened after the Great Recession of 2008-2009. GDP recovered in about uh, four years, but it took more than 10 years for the bottom 50% to recover its pre-Great Recession income level. So you had a massive disconnect between you know, how GDP was growing and how income was growing for most of the population. But over the last year or so, it's been the poorer half of America for once that has been improving their position. Surging incomes have helped push them closer to the richer half of Americans. And part of that was because a lot of people were getting pandemic benefits from the government. But even after those were rolled back, a super tight labor market has been helping to push their incomes up. Meanwhile, Gabriel's tracker shows the rich have been seeing their incomes decline, largely because the stock market has tanked. But there's also the other side of the coin of these wage increases for low-income Americans. Evidence suggests it's one reason why inflation has been surging. Macroeconomic theory has long said there's a trade-off between a super tight labor market, you know, where wages are surging, and inflation. I think the tool that we are trying to develop is precisely what will make it possible to have an informed debate about those trade-offs. And this tool already appears to be part of the debate. When Gabriel and his colleagues first released it earlier this year, the Biden White House jumped at the chance to highlight the gains it shows for working-class Americans. It was sort of a proof of concept. And that's a big deal, right? Because for Gabriel and his trio, it wasn't just enough to make the remix. The hope was that people would actually listen. Greg Rosalski, Adrian Ma, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 76 degrees in Boston at 451. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have an update on legislation seeking to restrict MassHealth's ability to recoup funds after members die. That's just ahead here on WBUR. A severe thunderstorm warning is in effect for much of the Boston area until 5 p.m. There are strong storms with thunder, gusty winds, and heavy downpours along the Mass Pike from Worcester east into Boston and also from Boston south towards Quincy. There's even some penny-sized hail in the storms. Otherwise, tonight it'll be uh, mostly cloudy and the temperatures will be down around 76. Tomorrow will be near 92 degrees and it will be partly sunny. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best, with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen, redsbest.com. And Peabody Essex Museum. Patrick Kelly, Runway of Love, celebrates the genius of a self-taught designer who changed fashion forever. On view now. Tickets at PEM.org. Claire's, the staple for many malls, is making a comeback. So you might go into CVS and see like a little mini Claire's aisle, even a grocery store, and there might be a little Claire's section there. I'm Rima Khreis, rebuilding the 90s, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Steve Brown, in for Lisa Mullins. One of the proposed state laws left in limbo at the end of formal legislative sessions earlier this week is an amendment to rein in MassHealth estate recovery. MassHealth is the state's Medicaid program. It provides health coverage mainly to people with low incomes. Many people don't know that after certain MassHealth members die, the agency moves to recoup money it paid out for their health care. It does that by filing claims against members' estates that end up in probate court. Catherine Lawless of West Springfield was stunned when she saw the letter MassHealth sent to the lawyer for her late mother's modest estate. It basically said, you owe us $36,000. We need it in one payment, one lump sum. And if you are unable to give us this money, there will be a lien placed on your home. It kind of, you know, felt very much like someone like coming to bust down my door and kind of just try to take things from me. Lala still lives in that same condo where she cared for her mother. We brought you her story last week. Senator Joe Comerford of Northampton sponsored legislation to restrict what Mass Health can do in terms of recovering money after patients die. She joins us now. Hello, Senator. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. We should say some of what MassHealth does in terms of estate recovery is required by federal Medicaid law. Some is not. Can you briefly explain the basics of that? So the federal government, through Medicaid, requires when a person uh, dies after age 55 that the state recoup money for nursing home stays, for home and community-based long-term care services, and for related hospital and pharmacy services while receiving nursing home or these long-term community-based care. In Massachusetts, we have added hospital stays, that's short-term, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, dentists, optometry and vision care, audiologists, prescriptions, durable medical equipment, behavioral health providers, home health services, hospice, physical and occupational and speech therapy, radiology, medical supplies. So all of that on top of what the federal government requires. How does Massachusetts traditionally compare to the rest of the country in terms of how far it goes with the optional or additional Medicaid estate recovery not required by federal law? We are one of the most aggressive states in our recovery traditionally. That changed a bit during the pandemic, but we still are among the states that recover the most on top of what the federal government asks us to recover. Do you know why we would do that? Well, that's the question of the day, right? <laughs> why in the world would mass health want to claw back or recover, as the word is, costs from the estates of 
those who are among the most low income and or people who are living with chronic disabilities. These are both communities that are affected by this, I think, quite a harsh process. Mm -hmm. Most people on Medicaid don't have estates in probate court, and, and most who do have modest ones, mainly consisting of equity in a home. Uh, what are your concerns about what's happening to families when MassHealth goes after that money? Well, I got into this because of a constituent whose sister died very abruptly. That sister was caring for a disabled son. Uh, she had saved her whole life to buy a very small home. The woman was on mass health, although working very hard to be able to provide for herself and her son. And wouldn't you know it, shortly after her death, they received a note that they were going to have to provoke the sale of the home where this young man was living. It became unthinkable to me that this was actually happening in Massachusetts, but in fact it was. Senator, you, you filed a bill to restrict mass health estate recovery. Uh, that legislation got bogged down, so you attached an estate recovery reform amendment to the wide-ranging economic development and tax relief bill that the legislature was considering. The Senate passed the amendment last month, but the broader bill never got out of the conference committee, and the legislative session then ended. Uh, what is the central feature of the legislation, and, and where does it go from here? Uh, the central feature is actually quite simple. It just simply directs Massachusetts to do the federal minimum for mass health estate recovery. I'd like the federal law to be changed as well, uh, and there are good folks in Congress working on that, but Massachusetts shouldn't add anything. This bill, in addition to having this important provision, the Mass Health Estate Recovery, has really needed and necessary direct spending and tax relief for people in the Commonwealth. So I'm very much hoping we are able to deliver that this session, along with the policy provisions like this. The amount clawed back or recovered is so small compared to the real disruption and hardship that this process has incurred across the Commonwealth, we should relieve to the extent possible allowable by federal law our constituents of added burden. State Senator Joe Comerford of Northampton, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. WBUR reached out to the Executive Office of Health and Human Services to explain why Massachusetts goes further than many other states in efforts to recover funds from estates, but it did not answer that question. The agency's website says estate recovery is used to supplement funds available for medical assistance programs and limit the tax burden on citizens of the Commonwealth caused by rising medical costs. It's 77 degrees in Boston at just a minute and a half before 5 o'clock. Coming up, as All Things Considered continues, U.S. employers added more than a half million jobs in the month of July. That's more than twice as many as forecasters had expected. That story and more coming up in the second hour of All Things Considered here on WBUR. In the forecast, chance of showers and thunderstorms before 9 o'clock tonight, otherwise mostly cloudy. The lows will be around 74 degrees, partly sunny near 92 degrees tomorrow, with a chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 o'clock. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. 
and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. A Morning Edition host, Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. employers added more than a half a million jobs in July, more than twice as many as forecasters had expected. The unemployment rate fell to just 3.5%, matching the level before the COVID pandemic. It's Friday, August 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also coming up, the White House has declared monkeypox a public health emergency. We urge every American to take monkeypox seriously and to take responsibility to help us tackle this virus. But some experts argue the messaging should be more specific and transparent about whose risks are the highest. We'll have an update on the slow cleanup in eastern Kentucky after flooding that left at least three dozen people dead. And Democrats are one step closer to passing the Inflation Reduction Act, but they still have a long weekend ahead. It's 5.01. First is news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In retaliation for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China has announced it's canceling or suspending dialogue with the U.S. on a range of issues, including climate change, military relations, and anti-narcotics efforts. The announcement today, the latest in a series of steps meant to punish the U.S. for the Speaker's visit. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby condemning what he called Beijing's provocative actions. China's not just punishing the United States with these actions, but they're actually punishing the whole world. The world's largest emitter now is refusing to engage on critical steps necessary to stand up to combat the climate crisis. China, which is holding military exercises off the coast of Taiwan, has called on Washington to fix its mistakes. However, the White House today said it has nothing to rectify, calling Beijing's efforts to suspend some communications channels irresponsible. This week, a busload of migrants from Texas border communities arrive in New York City. It's Governor Greg Abbott's way of criticizing the Biden administration's immigration policies, which he says are leaving Texas border communities overwhelmed. Critics, meanwhile, are condemning the busing operation. Texas Public Radio's Pablo de la Rosa has more. Immigrant rights advocates have criticized the governor's continued tactic of allocating resources they say should be used to address the humanitarian crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border. Aaron Reichland Melnick is policy director at American Immigration Council. This is yet another example of Texas weaponizing human beings as part of an electoral strategy. There's a lot of things that Texas could be doing with the $60,000 it's spending per bus. Thousands of migrants have already been transported to Washington, D.C. under the same program since April, according to a statement from Abbott's office. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. Progress is being made in eastern Kentucky as recovery efforts continue there. A week after floods damaged many communities, the death toll remains at 37. Member station WEKU Stan Ingold is more. 
Cell phone service is mostly restored across much of eastern Kentucky, and crews have been able to get power back to much of the area. While progress is being made, the weather continues to be an issue. During a press conference, Governor Andy Bashir warned of thunderstorms that could set things back. Infrastructure, be it uh, utility, poles, but also trees, um, with the ground being so saturated, if we have significant wind, uh, could lead to some damage. He also announced that President Joe Biden and the First Lady will be coming to the Commonwealth on Monday to see the damage firsthand. For NPR News, I'm Stan Ingold in Richmond, Kentucky. Stocks were mostly lower today with stronger than expected July jobs report causing worries for Wall Street. The Fed is not likely to let up on aggressively raising interest rates. The Nasdaq was down 63 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Rolling thunder and driving rain are making their way through the Boston area and heading to the south. The severe thunderstorm warning posted for Suffolk County and parts of Middlesex and Norfolk counties just expired. The National Weather Service cautions a strong thunderstorm still possible for another 45 minutes in Boston and surrounding communities along with Norfolk and Plymouth counties. The weather is causing delays over at Logan Airport. Inbound flights are delayed an average of an hour. Departures are running 45 minutes to an hour behind. That's according to the flight tracking website FlightAware. Regular service on part of the Green Line will be disrupted for four weeks while work is completed on the new Medford branch of the line. From August 22nd through September 18th, buses will shuttle passengers between Government Center and Union Square in Somerville. The opening of the Medford branch is also being delayed from this summer until late November. MBTA General Manager Steve Poftak says one factor in the delay is the agency's working to comply with the Federal Transit Administration's safety orders following a series of problems at the T. We have had to pull back some of our personnel and allocate them to other places on the system as part of our response to the FTA special directives. So there are times when we haven't been able to provide the level of staffing that would make the project go as fast as possible. Today's announcement follows this week's decision to shut down the entire Orange Line for a month for repairs starting later this month. Today's announcement leaves T-Riders scrambling once again. WBUR's Simone Rios reports. The T says the Union Branch closure will allow workers to finish the long-delayed part of the Green Line extension into Medford. Trains were scheduled to start traveling through Medford this summer. Now that won't happen until late November. Cambridge resident Jessica Glynn says to get to work during the shutdown, she'll be taking the buses the T will be running. I was taking the shuttles in before they finished this branch, so as long as it's all going from the same stations, it is what it is. We're all in the same boat together. The T says the union branch disruption will also allow work to continue on the government center garage, which reopened last month after a construction worker was killed in March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. In sports, the Red Sox will take on the Royals again tonight in Kansas City. The forecast, chance of showers and thunderstorms before 9 o'clock tonight, otherwise mostly cloudy. Lows will be around 74 degrees. Partly sunny, near 92 degrees tomorrow. Chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 o'clock. Mostly sunny and 95 degrees on Sunday. Slight chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The U.S. job market blew past all expectations in July. Today we learned that employers added more than half a million jobs last month. That's more than twice as many as forecasters were predicting. The U.S. has now replaced all of the jobs that were lost in the early months of the pandemic. President Biden celebrated the milestone at the White House. Today there are more people working in America than before the pandemic began. In fact, there are more people working in America than any point in American history. The job market has proven remarkably resilient, but that could complicate efforts to fight inflation. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Okay, so this jobs number shattered all expectations, right? What's going on here? I mean, not that I'm complaining. Yeah, forecasters had been expecting a slowdown in hiring, and instead the pace just picked up. Uh, just about every industry added workers last month, including restaurants and retailers and factories. Even construction companies were hiring in July, despite the slowdown in home building that's followed rising mortgage rates. Uh, jobs numbers for May and June were also revised up, and unemployment fell to just 3.5%, which is tied with the lowest in more than half a century. That sounds like great news. But what does this all say about the strength of the overall economy? Well, it says whatever doubts businesses might be having about the economy, they are still eager to hire. Uh, now, last week's GDP report did show the economy shrank a little bit in the spring for the second consecutive quarter, and that had some people talking about a possible recession. Uh, we are getting some mixed signals in the economic data, but Daniel Zhao, who's with the job search website Glassdoor, says the job market just keeps humming along. I think there is still an ongoing debate about whether we are near a recession, but the labor market has been a continual bright spot. Today's report does help tamp down some recession fears. With 528,000 more jobs in July, that's half a million more people getting paychecks. That means more money to spend. And, of course, consumer spending is still the biggest driver of the overall economy. True. But what does all of this say about wages? Wages are going up, uh, although they're still not keeping pace with prices. Uh, average wages in July were up 5.2 percent from a year ago. That's a slightly bigger increase than we saw in June. And it's a sign the job market is still really tight. Businesses are still having to compete for workers. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, bigger paychecks are good for employees, uh, but they also have the potential to fuel higher inflation. The Federal Reserve had been hoping to see some cooling off in the job market, but that's certainly not evident in today's report. Now, one thing that's kind of mysterious, usually when you have a really strong job market like this, mm -hmm. you expect to see more people coming off the sidelines looking for work. Instead, we actually saw people leaving the workforce in July for the second month in a row. That's so interesting. Well, if the job market, Scott, shows no signs of slowing down, how will that affect the Fed's efforts to curb inflation, you think? It probably means the Fed's going to keep raising interest rates pretty aggressively in an effort to tamp down demand and get prices back under control. You know, the central bank raised interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point at each of its last two meetings in June and July. After today's jobs report, a lot more people expect to see a similar jumbo-sized rate increase at the next Fed meeting in September. But, you know, a lot can happen between now and then. We will get a new report card in, on inflation next week. Uh, we know that gasoline prices have come down a lot over the last month and a half. But, of course, a lot of other prices are still going up. Yep. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome.
When the White House declared monkeypox a public health emergency, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra said this should concern everyone. We urge every American to take monkeypox seriously and to take responsibility to help us tackle this virus. But the reality is this disease is not affecting everyone equally. According to the latest data from the World Health Organization, 99% of the people diagnosed with monkeypox are men. And 98% of those who specify their sexual orientation are men who have sex with men. People like Kyle Plank, a 26-year-old grad student in New York City who is studying infectious diseases. I haven't had a ton of super painful experiences to compare it to, but it's definitely for me personally the worst that I've gone through. And especially because it was like an internal sort of pain, it was really hard to deal with. He told our colleague Ping Huang he spent several days bedridden with monkeypox. I had had a really high fever and I was taking warm baths like five or six times a day because that was one of the only things that made me feel better. So if I had to rate that, I guess my pain was at like a seven or eight out of the worst pain I could ever imagine. And it came and went throughout the day. As someone who studies infectious diseases, Plank was pretty familiar with the risks. Those things combined with being a gay man in New York City, I think I had more awareness than the average person. So even though I knew about it, I didn't I didn't think I was going to get it. So when I actually did, I was very shocked. He got better after he started a medicine called T-pox. So how can we talk about this disease in an accurate and specific enough way to help those at highest risk without creating stigma or homophobia? Greg Gonsalves at the Yale School of Public Health has wrestled with this question. He's spent decades working on HIV and other infectious diseases. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much. What comes to mind for you when you hear Secretary Becerra say every American should take monkeypox seriously? Well, every American should take it seriously, but there are two kinds of taking it seriously. One is when thinking that you're at personal risk, and that would be men who have sex with men, gay men in the United States, particularly those who who are sexually active. Um, Other Americans, you know, should have some empathy and some solidarity and help their gay and lesbian neighbors get through this. Um, Many straight Americans rally to our side during the HIV epidemic. But the federal government really needs to to get its act together because right now um, we're failing in the response. There's a long history of politicians and homophobes portraying gay men as vectors of disease. And so if public officials get specific about how this disease spreads and how to prevent it, do they risk playing into those harmful tropes? Well, one is we we have to figure out how to, to hold two thoughts in our head at once. One is it's not a gay disease but it's happening among men who have sex with men. Um, And what the federal government has actually been pretty good at is that they've been very, very um, vocal about the need not to stigmatize LGBT communities, gay men, um, not to discriminate against them. That being said, you know, we've already heard um, from certain politicians, um, particularly the other party, that have tried to to make this a way to scapegoat people in a moment of crisis. Um, And, you know, we need to be fact-based in our prevention messages. Um, And we have to just be very, very clear about the fact that discrimination and stigma are are bad in a moral sense, but they also drive people away from care and prevention. This disease is not only spread through sex, but it is often spread through sex. And after the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, declared monkeypox a global public health emergency, He spoke much more specifically than Secretary Becerra. That means making safe choices for yourself and others. For men who have sex with men, this includes, for the moment, reducing your number of sexual partners, 
Some gay men were outraged at being told who to sleep with, and others, like sex columnist Dan Savage, tweeted, that's not discrimination, that's not homophobia, that's treating adult gay men like adults. In your opinion, was that the right message? Well, Dr. Tedros did something courageous when he made an announcement of a public health emergency. He, he overruled his advisory committee and said, indeed it is. It's affecting gay men across the world. Um, and so I think he spoke a, a, about this in, from a position of care and solidarity, not of, of, of moral criticism or moral opprobrium. And so, yes, I think it's fair to say modifying the places you seek out sexual contact is something reasonable to do. And we should be talking about it um, explicitly, particularly among the gay community, talking to ourselves peers to peers. That being said, you need to keep on the lookout for stigma and discrimination, because that's what I think people are reacting to, that talking about gay sex um, among ourselves, among gay men, among the LGBT community is one thing, but certain politicians will always take advantage of it. You spent so much of your career working on HIV, although monkeypox is not fatal, there is a vaccine, there are treatments. Still, there are parallels between that disease and this one. What lessons from your experience working on HIV and AIDS do you apply to this moment? Well, the main thing we need to do is to support people who are suffering from this disease, the gay men who are in, are in desperate pain, as your interviewee spoke about. Um, people need to be supported. Remember, we're 21 days of, of quarantine may be okay for some, but if you don't have a job that lets you stay at home or you don't have sick pay, how are you going to do that? If you go into the hospital to get pain medication, what's going to happen if you're underinsured or, or uninsured when you get that hospital bill? So my main thing is that in, in the 1980s, the gay community had to build its own systems of care for itself. We shouldn't have to do that 40 years later. We should figure out a way to ensure that everybody who has a case of monkeypox does not fall between the cracks. I know treatment, vaccines, access to care is its own entire issue. But on this question of messaging and how to balance specificity with not wanting to inflame homophobia and stigma, how would you rate the government's performance so far? I mean, I don't know if I have enough data to, to do that. Because remember, public health plays out at the state and local level. The CDC's role in public health is to give technical guidance. How is it um, transmitted? How is it prevented? Um, you know, all the sort of facts. And, and state and local health departments are crafting public health messages. And so some are better than others, right? Again, you know, the best messaging is going gonna, is gonna to be the most honest, as Dan Savage said, and treat us like adults. This is not a gay disease. There should be no stigma and discrimination, but it is affecting gay men right now. And we're going to need to modify our behavior, not out of some sort of moral admonition about our sex lives, but about protecting ourselves and caring for each other and sharing solidarity with our fellow gay men to say, this is going to be a rough few months until we can get vaccination up to a level where we have broad protection against the virus. And, you know, this happened in the mid-1980s. Gay men started modifying their behavior and we saw HIV rates coming down in the middle of the 80s before the big sort of community-based uh, campaign started. So we can do this. Greg Gonsalves is an associate professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. Thank you very much. Thanks, Harry. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 76 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered in eastern Kentucky, a slow cleanup and recovery is underway. After flash flooding at the end of July, more than three dozen people died and some are still missing.
In business news, attacks on web apps for the gaming industry have more than doubled over the past year. That's according to a new report from the Cambridge-based cloud computing company Akamai Technologies. The report says the attacks put video game player accounts at risk of being compromised as criminals seek to steal personal information, including credit card data. Wall Street stocks were mixed today. The Dow finished up 67 points at 32,794. NASDAQ fell 67 points at 12,653. And the S&P 500 was down 9 points, closing at 4143. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. In the forecast, a series of thunderstorms that passed through the Boston area are moving south, most recently over Mansfield to the Franklin area. Storms will be around the area until 9 o'clock tonight. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy. The lows will be around 74 degrees. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As floodwaters recede in rural eastern Kentucky, residents are taking stock of the devastation. The floods, made worse by climate change, stretched across seven counties, killing 37 people. Hundreds are in government-run shelters. Food, water, and medicine need to get to remote areas. And people have been displaced from an area with few houses and not much flat land for building new ones. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports that the floods have also interrupted efforts to rebuild the post-coal economy in central Appalachia. It was just over a week ago that Brian Lucas evacuated his wife, two kids, dog and cat, from their mobile home as the water from the small creek in front of their house turned into a roaring river. And right now, he needs a break from dealing with the aftermath. Yep, so this is what they call Pine Mountain. Why did you want to show this to us? Uh, This is the reason why we're here. I mean, this is a beautiful mountain. You know, you don't see below right now the the flood and disaster. All you can see is a carpet of lush green peaks up here. 
But down the mountain in rural Isom, Kentucky, the only home his kids have ever known is a total loss. Lucas and his family have been staying with his in-laws just across the street and a few miles from where he grew up. Yeah, you know, that's the thing about Eastern Kentucky. It's uh, family, and family's a big thing here. And so you have families that live close to each other and have lived close to each other their whole lives, you know. That priority defines the region for many, even as it's undergone huge changes. Where coal used to be king, the largest employer in much of eastern Kentucky is now the hospital system. Lucas's father was a coal truck driver who got laid off. So he became a nurse there. And now Lucas manages medical equipment for the same company. He says another thing that defines this area is a sense that no one from the outside is going to come in and save them. We went today and actually got a haircut. And somebody says, well, why would you want to go get a haircut? Because it's a normal thing. That's a small business. If you're not spending money at that small business who got hit by the flood too, guess what? They don't exist anymore. He and many others here use one word over and over when describing residents. That word is resilient. But Betsy Whaley with the Mountain Association, a nonprofit that does economic development work, says that comes from living through more than your fair share of hardship. I mean, it's like one of those things that you say to people who've been kicked a lot. Oh, they're gritty. They can take it. And um, nobody wants to, right? Nobody wants to need grit. She says the coal bust caused mass layoffs, and many people pulled up stakes and moved away. Now she's worried that climate change, which makes inland flooding like this worse, is creating another challenge for the region. Groups like Whaley's have been trying to revitalize and diversify the economy to create jobs in post-coal Appalachia. A lot of wealth has been exported from this region, and so we've been supporting small businesses with uh, lending, business support, uh, helping communities organize themselves and uh, try to take back power and make sure that wealth stays local. Now, she says some painstaking efforts to build up small businesses have literally washed away overnight. She gives the example of a local woman who owns a grocery store and spent the last 10 years upgrading it. New lighting, new HVAC, new coolers you know, that are energy efficient. She just put solar on the building. She had six feet of water in there. It's a total loss. Where her store is, is a food desert. Another major institution, the schools, have also suffered. During a recent meeting with the Kentucky Department of Education, Letcher County School Superintendent Denise Yance says six schools were damaged, and there's been a more tragic toll. Unfortunately, we lost two staff members. Our community as the whole is devastated. The fall semester is being pushed back across the region as districts scramble to find enough undamaged space for students. One challenge is just how spread out the communities here are. Going to a different school might mean going over a mountain to a different county. Another is that about a quarter of people in the flooded area live below the poverty line. And Perry County Superintendent Jonathan Jett says many of his district's poorest families were the hardest hit. They lived in trailers that were 50 years old, homes that were 80 or 100 years old. They've never had a mortgage payment. They've never had homeowner's insurance. So if they do rebuild, FEMA's probably not going to cover all of that. He says he worries that this disaster could be the final straw for many who've lived here for generations. And I'm, I'm really 
concern that we may lose people from our communities because I think people, if they leave here, they're never coming back. These are long-term concerns. Right now, there are more immediate problems. Getting clean water, finding a place to live, getting the mud and mold out of homes and businesses. I'll probably have to take this up upstairs to the bathtub. In Hindman, Kentucky, where the downtown flooded, Doug Nasal Road stands in the storefront that houses his stringed instrument building school. He runs the Troublesome Creek Stringed Instrument Company, named for the brook that runs through town. He picks up a dulcimer. This one was fished out of the floodwaters at uh, Troublesome Creek. You know, this one is probably still playable. Almost in tune. It's the same creek that deposited the fine brown mud, coating mandolins, guitars, and expensive woodworking equipment. The same creek that makes it hard to think about rebuilding right now. Um, I love the people of Hindman. I love my guys. I hate that creek. <laughs> I hate that creek. Nasal Road's school is also a social enterprise. He trains people coming from drug court or local recovery centers to craft high-quality instruments. Some wind up working at the company's factory. Nasal Road says this has upended their lives, too. I have some people who are having extreme psychological distress. And, uh, you know, for people in recovery, this is not a good thing. Even though the first order of business is mucking out the building and lots of Lysol, Nasal Road is already thinking about ways to spin what's happened into a new opportunity. Maybe they'll make a special run of dulcimers from the wood that survived the flood. I have some people who are having extreme psychological distress and, uh, you know, for people in recovery, this is not a good thing. We reassured them that uh, We'll find something for them to do. Uh, I'm thinking uh, rebuilding a factory would be good. We're gonna we're gonna take care of them. Come hell or high water, made a joke. It's low hanging fruit, I guess. <laughs> but that's the truth. Hell or high water. He says it reminds him of a song he wrote many years ago that feels oh so timely. A bad break when you're broke. It's just another dirty joke. It ain't funny. It blame sure ain't right. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Hazard, Kentucky. This is NPR News. Claire's, the staple for many malls, is making a comeback. So you might go into CVS and see like a little mini Claire's aisle, even a grocery store, and there might be a little Claire's section there. I'm Rima Khreis, rebuilding the 90s, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Still isolated in the White House with COVID-19, President Biden signed two bills today aimed at curbing fraud in pandemic relief programs. By some estimates, billions of dollars that were supposed to help small businesses and people who lost their jobs could have ended up in the hands of fraudsters. 
Biden also had some strong words for the former president and his administration. Not only did the Trump administration let the biggest businesses with the teams of lawyers and accountants skip to the front of the line, my predecessor undermined the watchdogs who were supposed to be on the job to make sure relief went to mom and pop businesses who were supposed to get it in the first place. The bipartisan legislation Biden signed today extends the statute of limitations to give prosecutors more time to file criminal charges. The Justice Department has also named a special prosecutor to target the issue of COVID fraud. Republicans have unanimously chosen Milwaukee, the largest city in swing state Wisconsin, over Nashville to host the 2024 National Convention. From member station WUWM, Mayan Silver reports. Republicans have had their eye on Milwaukee since 2020 when the city was slated to host the Democratic National Convention and the pandemic pummeled those plans. Announcing the pick, Reince Priebus, former RNC chair, White House chief of staff and Wisconsin native said this. Milwaukee is the perfect place to go. It's a battleground state. It matters. I know sometimes we debate it. It matters. There has been pushback against hosting the convention from some advocacy, labor and voting groups in the majority minority city. But unlike in Nashville, a left-leaning city in the deep red state of Tennessee, Milwaukee's Democratic mayor and city council unanimously approved a hosting framework agreement. For NPR News, I'm Ayan Silver in Milwaukee. On Wall Street, stocks ended mixed to end the week. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Just days after it announced it was shutting down the entire Orange Line for a month of repairs, the MBTA today says it is going to temporarily halt regular service on part of the Green Line. The T will run buses between Government Center and Union Square for four weeks from August 22nd through September 18th to allow for final work on the extension's Medford branch. The MBTA says it's also delaying the opening of the Medford branch from this summer until late November, in part because T staff has been diverted from the project to other repairs on the system that were prompted by a federal safety review. MBTA's general manager Steve Poftak says the shutdown will advance the T's efforts to improve safety and reliability. We don't like to be in the position of pulling service back like this, but in this case, it also helps get us in position to get the Medford Square branch open as well. The T says the Green Line shutdown is also necessary for work on the Government Center Garage project by a private developer. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is among the state's congressional delegation who are calling for a fair free tea during the shutdowns of the Orange Line and part of the Green Line. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more. Presley says tea riders are owed transit options that are accessible and reliable, something they aren't getting right now. Because of decades of, of underinvestment, of mismanagement, of delayed and deferred maintenance, we find ourselves in a situation uh, where they are having to do these massive shutdowns, which are disruptive and devastating. The T says it's working to develop transportation alternatives for riders during the shutdowns and says replacement shuttle buses will be free. Presley says she's concerned with what these shutdowns will mean for commuters and their children as we approach the beginning of a new school year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. 
Fast-moving thunderstorms are still possible after heavy rain drenched Boston and surrounding communities earlier this afternoon. The National Weather Service reports radar was tracking a strong thunderstorm over Swansea just a few minutes ago. Earlier this hour, a strong storm moved through Mansfield near Stoughton, and there is some heavy rain and thunder over Situate and Marshfield. Police in Southborough report several lightning strikes and several trees and poles are down. Beside the storm, the heat has been another main feature today. These truly are the dog days of summer. Temperatures got up into the mid-90s again today in Boston, and we're likely to be in the midst of our second heat wave of the summer. We could get some relief by the middle of next week. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce joins us now to explain how this is all going to play out over the weekend. Thanks for joining us, Danielle. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we set a new temperature record in, for August 4th in Boston yesterday. Are you anticipating any more records being set in the next few days? Uh, next few days, Steve, the records are going to be hard to beat. They're in the upper 90s for tomorrow and Sunday, set back in the 1920s and 30s. Monday, it's going to be a close call. The record to beat is 96. Uh, that was set back in 1983. I'm forecasting a high of 95 right now, so it will be a close call. Uh, no matter how you want to cut it, though, it's still going to be really hot and humid. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, of course, fortunate to live by the ocean, which can provide uh, a respite from the heat. Uh, although I've heard some friends grumbling this summer that sometimes it's still too hot at the beach. Are there any prime times this weekend when a beach outing will be optimal? Listen, you know, the beach, if you take a dip in the ocean, feels nice, right? The water temperatures have warmed up there in the upper 60s and 70s. Even some of the, you know, bays and harbors are in the upper 70s in a couple spots down on Cape Cod in the islands, which is typically where we see the relief, right? Uh, this weekend will be no exception. We'll be 85 to 90 probably on Cape Cod and 85 to 90 in the mountains of northern New England as well. So yes, it's still hot, but it won't be quite as extreme as some of the cities and towns in and around the city of Boston. Mm -hmm. How do you as a meteorologist seek relief from the heat? Should I admit I was just floating in a lake for a couple hours with my kids? (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. Listen, it, it, it does. And here's the thing. It started raining. I pulled up the radar and I was like, OK, this is going to be a quick one. And we just stayed there, you know, at the lake, even though it rained for about five minutes. But, you know, I think I'm about to float away because I've been hydrating so much as well. That's key. The light colored, lightweight clothing, hydration, seeking shade if you do have to be outside, sun hats, sunblock, all those things are pretty basic, but make a huge difference in this type of heat. I see there are chances of showers on and off uh, during the weekend. Are these the kind of showers that just kind of pop up? because it's just too darn humid or or will they ease some of the drought that we've been uh, experiencing? Listen, about, you know, more than 50% of the state of Massachusetts is now in severe drought. And when we have this much humidity in place, there's tons of moisture in the atmosphere. So it almost wrings it out when we get a shower or downpour over us. But that's not going to be enough to, you know, kind of put a dent in this drought. We are several inches in a deficit. Even if we get, you know, one thunderstorm that drops a couple inches, that's not going to make much of a difference. Obviously, it'll be a little bit of welcome news because any precipitation is going to help out. Uh, Nonetheless, next couple of days, it's more hit or miss stuff. So one city or town could see it. Next town may not get one. I think most of the action will be scattered north and west of Boston tomorrow, maybe an isolated thunderstorm Sunday and again on Monday. Okay. Remind us the highs highs that you're forecasting for uh, tomorrow and Sunday. 
Absolutely. Tomorrow forecasting a high of 91. I do think there'll be a little sea breeze, but it's just so hot it's not going to make a huge difference. Uh, Sunday forecasting high of 95, oppressive humidity too. So the heat index is going to go over 100 degrees again on Sunday. Mid-90s again on Monday. One thing I do want to mention, backdoor cold front. Monday, Tuesday time frame. Exact timing is going to make a big difference on temperatures, especially at the coast. We're going to track that timing closely for you. Okay, we'll look forward to that relief. Thank you very much, meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Stay cool if you can. You too. Thank you. And right now it's 77 degrees in Boston at 539. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The Senate is getting ready for a long weekend of work on what Democrats call the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a wide-ranging bill tackling climate change, manufacturing, health care, prescription drugs, and taxes. And now that it's earned the blessing of Arizona Democrat Kirsten Sinema, the last Democratic holdout, the bill has the 50 votes it needs to pass. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer celebrated this development today. I'm pleased we have reached an agreement on the Inflation Reduction Act that I believe will receive the support of the entire Senate Democratic Conference. All right. To talk more about this legislation, we're joined now by NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Hey, Deepa. Hey there. All right. So we are heading into this long weekend, at least for senators. Where do things stand now? Like, what are we expecting to happen tomorrow? Yeah, that's right. So we can definitely anticipate some late nights on the Hill this weekend. Senator Schumer says he will introduce the bill tomorrow afternoon, which triggers a few other steps because this bill is getting passed through a budget reconciliation process. So first, we're still waiting on the Senate parliamentarian to rule on the bill to make sure it can actually be passed through budget reconciliation. If that's squared away, Schumer can introduce the bill as he has planned. And once he introduces the bill, it starts up 20 hours of debate split evenly between both sides. Now, Democrats are likely to to give back most of that time. And there are reports that Republicans might as well. So it could be shorter, a a shorter process than usual. And then we move to what's known as the Votorama. This (laughs) is where senators can introduce an unlimited number of amendments to the bill, and it can go on for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. Depending on timing, Votorama could start Saturday night or not start till Sunday. So we're basically just waiting to see how much time Republican lawmakers really want to drag this out. Okay. well, speaking of Republicans, they have been staunchly opposed to this bill, like since the very beginning, like when President Biden outlined elements of this legislation a year ago. So what are we hearing from Senate Republicans as they head into this weekend? 
Yeah, so they're not happy with it, of course. In fact, no Republican is voting for it at all. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had called it a, quote, goodie bag for far-left environmental activists. And other Republicans are, are worried about other aspects of the bill as well. Some Republicans have been claiming it makes inflation worse. And that part isn't true. But a recent analysis from the Congressional Budget Office does say that the bill really won't help with inflation right now. They said it will have a, quote, negligible effect on inflation in the calendar year of 2022. And this past week, Republicans have even been taking shots at West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who negotiated the bill behind the scenes with Schumer. Manchin is from a red state and oftentimes has been the one to tank Democrats' legislation. Now he's promoting this bill, which he's taking heat for. And another Democrat who tends to buck her party is Cinema, like we talked about. She agreed last night to move forward with the bill, but had a section on narrowing the carried interest tax loophole removed, which most other Democrats had supported. Right. Okay. Well, this has also been a fairly busy week on the Hill with a number of bills getting passed, many of them bipartisan. That is no small thing on Capitol Hill. What do you think this moment means for Democrats, especially for President Biden? Yeah, it's been a pretty good week for Democrats. They've gotten a lot done between guns, confirming Sweden and Finland into NATO, the PACT Act for veterans' benefits. And you're right, a lot of it has been bipartisan. But Schumer has repeatedly said this week that Democrats are also willing to go at it alone. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're doing with this legislation this weekend. If it passes through the Senate, the House could vote on it as early as next week. And what it means okay. for Biden is a huge portion of his domestic agenda is getting checked off. It's not a bad look heading into the midterms, and he'll have quite a few bills to sign in the coming weeks. That is NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram. Thank you, Deepa. Thank you. It's a war that stretches back centuries. People versus rats. The rat is a spoiler and a killer, which has flourished by adjusting himself to man's ways. The rat problem is man's problem. Well, there's a new front in that war as cities across the Northeast are seeing a spike in complaints about rats. Walter Wuthman of member station WBUR in Boston reports some cities are getting creative as they try to fight this rat surge. Just off this bike path in the dense city of Somerville, Michael Collins wades through the bushes and extracts a metal box. He's an exterminator, and this box is a trap. It kills rats with a jolt of electricity. No captures in that one. He walks a few yards down the path and opens up another box. It releases a rancid smell. This guy, how long do you think he's been uh, deceased? Two days. It's pretty big. Yeah. Pretty big yeah. belly. Every time these traps make a kill, they email the city. Somerville is just the second city in the country to use this kind of trap, called a smart box. Colin Ziegler, Somerville's self-proclaimed rat czar, says the trap's data helps identify the location of specific colonies. The city can then address problems nearby, like sealing off trash cans, filling in burrows, and teaching people how to rat-proof their homes. We think that they're the next step in rodent control and a, and a good city response. The pandemic tipped the balance in the ongoing battle between people and rodents. Following lockdowns, large cities across the northeastern United States started seeing more complaints about rats. Here's Michael Parsons, an urban ecologist at Fordham University who studies wild rat populations. It makes sense that with the closure of restaurants, rats are going to need new places to feed. And because they're normally feeding on restaurant wastes in the dumpsters. Parsons and his team analyzed New York City 311 data and found complaints spiked in the places close to restaurants. 
Harson says it appears rats moved from areas crowded with restaurants into residential neighborhoods around them. People used to seeing the occasional rat suddenly started seeing many, many more. Now that eateries are open again, Parsons believes some rats stayed in their new territories, but others migrated back to their old haunts. Boston 311 data show complaints about rats were up nearly 50% citywide last year, compared to before the pandemic. City crews are trying to respond to those complaints by killing rats with carbon monoxide. Early one recent morning, a couple sanitation workers wheeled a green metal machine out on Boston Common. They snaked its hose down into a rat's den. Then they started filling it with gas. Here's environmental health inspector Brendan Sheehan. So what happens is the smoke comes down and fills the den up. And as we see the smoke emanating out of the other burrows, we start sealing them off. That way we know it's a complete system. Sheehan says the carbon monoxide euthanizes rats by slowly putting them to sleep. Animal rights activists tend to agree carbon monoxide is more humane than other forms of rodent control, especially poison. Rat poison also kills other animals, like hawks, owls, and eagles, that eat contaminated rats. It sickens an estimated 10,000 children in the U.S. every year and kills some pets. Some communities are phasing out rat poison altogether and trying out alternatives, like edible rat birth control. Holly Elmore, an animal welfare researcher with the group Rethinking Priorities, believes we need to stop trying to completely eradicate rats. If they can't do that on islands where they, you know, put millions of dollars into eliminating every rat, I mean, you can't do it in your own house. You can't solve the problem by killing every rat. The Somerville rat czar feels the same. Colin Ziegler says his city's electric traps are just part of the solution. You can never solve a rodent problem just through trapping. You have to look at food sources, you have to look at water sources and shelter. Despite all the money spent on cutting-edge technology, city exterminators say nothing beats a dry yard and a tightly sealed trash can to keep the rats at bay. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's that time of the year when families everywhere realize how much their kids' feet grew over the summer, or they try to figure out whether they can get just one more semester's wear out of those backpacks. Well, this year's back-to-school shopping season lands in the middle of the highest inflation in four decades. So NPR's Alina Seljuk looked into how that might affect spending. Shopping for her three children, Stephanie Maddox from Alabama recently picked up a bottle of hand sanitizer. Oh my gosh, it's probably triple in price. Like a small little maybe eight ounce container was like $4, four or $5. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And I have to have one for each kid. And sometimes they ask for multiple bottles for each kid. Then Maddox looked at binders, which had fewer options and higher price tags. There were deals, but she says they felt more like regular prices, like she was spending more and not getting more. My budget is bigger this year. I started a new job last year. So it's, it's a bit bigger, but it's still, it seems like it doesn't matter much. <laughs> that is exactly how inflation works. And for the first time since 2020, higher prices have replaced the pandemic as the top concern for shoppers, right as back-to-school season began. This year, spending on school clothes and supplies is on track to match last year's record of $37 billion, according to the National Retail Federation. Keisha Virtue, a senior retail research analyst at JLL, looked into how much that whopper of a number was caused by inflation. For this particular year, I think it's because prices are higher. Um, not to say that some people will not be buying more, because it does definitely look that way, but prices are also higher, so that's a factor. 
The NRF estimates that families with school children will on average spend $864, which is $15 more than last year. Generally speaking, American shoppers are still spending a lot, certainly more than before the pandemic. But now they're often getting less for their money. Mary Reinsberger from Michigan is a teacher who also has triplets going to 10th grade and another daughter starting senior year. I'm still operating somewhat in the mode of we'll get what we need unless the sticker shock, I just can't stand it. She says that's how she's been dealing with food, where inflation has been the worst. She's still getting her usuals, unless it's maybe a bag of Doritos that's just not worth the new price for her. Emotionally, this is already a whole new way to shop. For the first time, maybe in my entire experience of being a mom, I'm, you know, pausing on buying kind of more basic things that I used to, like, not even think twice about. Like she's now thinking twice about soda or grapefruit cups for kids' lunches. But of course, back-to-school supplies are almost their own category of shopping, which often takes priority. There's a deadline and a strict list and children whom you want to succeed. So now, in surveys, people say, like every year, they're looking for coupons and discounts. But many are also skipping travel or dipping into savings to stock up for school. Also this year, many more parents say they are reusing supplies, like Beverly Rokies from California, who won't be buying a new backpack for her three young daughters. I'm going to use the same one from last year because they really like it. Like all other parents I spoke with, she was kind of looking forward to the new school year, the first one that feels as normal as it gets. I think it's going to be a great year, just being back in the classes, you know. Except the spending does not stop. Fees for school trips, costumes, musical instruments, gas for all the driving, all the extras that keep piling up long after back-to-school shopping is over. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 76 degrees in Boston at 552. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman, two of the co-chairs of the new national political third party called Forward. That's ahead here on WBUR. And coming to City Space Wednesday, August 10th, a primary debate with the candidates for Massachusetts Attorney General. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, there's still some strong thunderstorms in the area. There are reports of heavy downpours in Marshfield, Plymouth, and Bridgewater. Once the storms move out, it'll be mostly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 74 degrees. Partly sunny and near 92 degrees tomorrow. Chance of showers and thunderstorms after 2 o'clock. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. I will never be cancer free, but it's under control because of the chemo. If I didn't have a future ahead where I could get back on my boats, I could get back at sea, I'm not sure how I would handle it. I'm happiest on a boat, on the water. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily. 
from the New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Third parties in the U.S. have often tried and failed to break through the traditional Democratic-Republican divide. The co-founders of a new political party insist this time will be different. Forward describes itself as a home for centrists who reject extremism. Two of the co-chairs are former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and former Republican governor of New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman. Good to have you both here. Good to be with you. Great to be here, Ari. You've been promoting Forward as a party that does not adhere to a strict ideology. And the flip side of that is that people are struggling to figure out what you would do if you win elections on some of the issues that are most important to Americans. I know you've planned a listening tour for next year to hear from voters. But if you're looking at running candidates in the 2024 elections, do you owe it to voters to tell them what your proposed policies would actually be? We're backing candidates right now in local elections in the midterms. We're building a 50-state national party from the ground up. But the slogan, not left, not right, forward, speaks to tens of millions of Americans because there's actually a common sense consensus on the vast majority, even all, of even the most divisive, polarizing issues in the country. You can see it in poll after poll. I know you've been asked many times, but it seems that you prefer not to articulate specific policy positions on guns, on abortion, on on some of these key issues. These are issues that when you get into them, you find that there's actually a middle ground here. Most people don't want to do away with ability to, to own firearms. But on the other hand, they don't think it ought to be wide open and everybody should have as many as they want, as young as they want. So would you support, for example, a ban on assault style weapons? The point is here, not what I would support. Would your party support expanded background checks? Right now, we don't have those positions because what we're going to do starting this fall is do this listening tour to listen to the people to say, what do you want? But you're putting people on the ballot this fall. Shouldn't voters know what your party represents on some of these issues? They will. Once we have had our convention, which we will have next year, we will adopt a platform. But it will be based on what the public tells us they're concerned about and how they want problems approached. The presidential historian Michael Beschloss tweeted this. He said, remember that historically third parties sometimes have the effect of tipping a close election to an existing party's nominee who is the opposite of what the third party stands for. That's the history. How realistic is it to ask people to ignore that track record? So the fact that people are jumping to the presidential, that's not where our attention is. The fact is anyone who's concerned about the spoiler effect at any level should simply advocate for ranked choice voting and then anyone can vote for whomever they want according to their true preferences and no one will be accused of spoiling an election for anyone else. Well, you could push for ranked choice voting without creating a third party. Not with the same contact that we can have from the number of people we have joining us right now in our state by state buildup. So because it's it's a decision that's going to be made at the state level. And so we need to have people educated and to start to have their voices heard. And, and Ari, you can say in the abstract, oh, you can be for open primaries and ranked choice voting from within the two-party system. But the fact is, if there's one thing that the parties can agree on, it's that any competition is bad. So neither party is going to do something in a particular area that is against their political interests unless pushed to do so by the people of this country who are fed up and want better. I know you've both been clear that your focus is not on the 2024 presidential race, that there's a distance to go between now and then. That said, should we expect to see a forward party candidate for president on the ballot in 2024? 
it's far too early to say to respond to that. We may or we may not, depending on who the parties have, depending on where we find ourselves at that particular time. But I know it's hard to believe for everybody who wants to just focus on the presidential. We really are determined to build this from the ground up. Uh, the mayors, the town councils, secretaries of state, state's attorneys general, governors, because they're the ones that impact people the most every day. And so that's where we're focusing in 2024. We'll see when we get there. Former Republican New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman and former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang are two of the co-chairs of the new Forward Party. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 76 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, fallout continues over Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit this week to Taiwan. The White House has called China's ambassador to the U.S. to address concerns about military exercises. That's just ahead here on WBUR. Chance of showers and thunderstorms tonight, otherwise mostly cloudy. Lows will be around 74, partly sunny near 92 degrees tomorrow, mostly sunny and 95 degrees on Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The White House has summoned China's ambassador to the U.S. to address concerns about military exercises around Taiwan. It's the latest in the fallout over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island. It's Friday, August 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also coming up, several provisions aimed at reducing the cost of prescription drugs are included in the Big Inflation Reduction Act now before Congress. We'll take a look at some of them. Some reporters from the mainstream news media are finding it increasingly difficult to access Republican political candidates. The benefit of doing the interview does not outweigh the risk of winding up the subject of massive amounts of TV advertising from your opposition. The heat wave will continue throughout the weekend. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
U.S. employers added more than half a million new jobs last month. That was more than twice what many forecasters had expected. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the labor market has proven to be remarkably resilient despite high inflation and slowing economic growth. Nearly every industry added workers in July, with the service sector accounting for most of the gains. Economist Daniel Zhao, who's with the job search website Glassdoor, says the U.S. economy has now replaced all the jobs lost during the pandemic in less than two and a half years since the coronavirus first struck. This jobs report is all about milestones. Not only are we back to pre-pandemic levels of payroll employment, but we're also back to the pre-pandemic unemployment rate. The unemployment rate's just three and a half percent, tied for the lowest in more than half a century. The tight job market means rising wages, which could complicate the Federal Reserve's effort to curb inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. The Senate has confirmed seven nominees to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, a body that advises judges on federal crime and punishment. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports the move ends three years of limbo for the commission. The Sentencing Commission had lacked enough members to do its job, promoting transparency and reducing disparities in punishment. The agency sets guidelines that apply to more than 55,000 federal criminal sentences every year. Prisoner advocate Kevin Ring cheered the confirmation of the new members and said they could help do more on compassionate release of sick people in prison. The new chairman of the panel is Judge Carlton Reeves of Mississippi. A top federal public defender will serve as one of the vice chairs of the commission. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. China says it is cutting off dialogue with the U.S. on a range of issues, everything from climate change to military relations to efforts to fight drug trafficking. It's apparently in response to the recent visit to Taiwan by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. NPR's John Ruich is in Beijing and has the latest on military operations being carried off, off the coast of the island nation, which China claims sovereignty over. China claims Taiwan, but it doesn't rule the place. And by all accounts, it isn't prepared to use force to seize control of Taiwan. And its preference, by the way, is to not to have to do so. So these exercises are part of a series of actions that Beijing's taking to show its unhappiness, to impose costs on those that it feels are responsible. And, you know, as to the question, are they ramping up for a bigger show of force? We don't know. I mean, these military drills are scheduled to end on Sunday. Uh, but analysts who watch the region and watch China say that it wouldn't be surprising if there was more to come. NPR's John Ruich in Beijing. One beleaguered government agency that actually may get a bit of help if the Inflation Reduction Act gets signed into law is the Internal Revenue Service. The package the Senate will begin debating this weekend will call for about $80 billion for the IRS over the next 10 years to be used for enforcement. On Wall Street, the Dow moved lower today, or was higher today, up 76 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Parts of the area are cleaning up after strong storms this evening. Southborough police report there have been several lightning strikes in town, including at least one home that was hit by lightning. A line of thunderstorms is over Marshfield and Plymouth and pushing to the south and east. The storms have gusty winds and heavy downpours. Well, for the second time this week, the MBTA has announced a major shutdown on the transit system. No Green Line trains will run between Government Center and Union Square for four weeks starting August 22nd. WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports. The shutdown is partly for work that's needed so the Green Line extension to Medford can open, and it largely overlaps with a month-long closure of the Orange Line. TGM Steve Poftak says shuttle buses will run on both lines and other options may be available. We're taking a look at what we can do on the commuter rail in terms of adding service. We think we have a sufficient number of buses, but we are still in conversations with uh, a number of our municipal partners. 
The opening of the Medford branch is being delayed again from late summer to late November. Some workers on that project have been diverted to address safety problems elsewhere on the T as part of a federal review. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. The city of Medford is being directly impacted by the shutdowns. Mayor Brianna Lungo-Curran says another delay in the opening of the Medford branch of the Green Line is also tough to take. I appreciate the T trying to make changes and maintain equipment and keep the T safe, but I'm frustrated. I, I would wish this was information was given to us sooner. The partial green line shutdown and the orange line closure are still a few weeks away, but another service suspension starts tomorrow. The T is shutting down the green line E branch from Copley to Heath Street through August 21st. It's to for work to make improvements on the track. The MBTA says riders can use the Route 39 bus as an alternative. The head of the 43rd annual Pan Mass Challenge says the heat is not going to stop the 6,000 bicyclists planning to ride this weekend for a good cause. The two-day bike-a-thon raises tens of millions of dollars every year for cancer research and treatment at Boston's Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. WBUR's Josie Garino has more. Sure, it's not ideal weather to be riding your bike in 90-plus degrees in muggy conditions from the hills of Central Mass to the tip of Cape Cod. But Pan Mass Challenge founder Billy Starr is not sweating it. He says 85% of PMC cyclists have done it before and, more importantly, are on track to raise $66 million. It's a veteran team, not just the professional staff, but the volunteer staff and the riders. They have seen this before, and they're looking forward to it. Starr says the hardy participants have trained to ride any one of the optional routes from 25 to 211 miles. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. In sports, the Red Sox take on the Royals again tonight out in Kansas City. The forecast, chance of showers and thunderstorms before 9 tonight. Otherwise, mostly cloudy. The lows will be around 74 degrees. Partly sunny, near 92 degrees tomorrow with a chance of some showers. Mostly sunny and 95 degrees on Sunday. Right now, 76 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The fallout continues from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan this week. China continues live-fire military drills around the island of Taiwan. And today, it announced sanctions on Pelosi and on members of her immediate family. Meanwhile, the White House summoned China's ambassador to express its concerns about these military drills and the risks of further escalation. To talk about the latest on these tensions, I'm joined now by NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez and NPR's Emily Fang, who covers China. Hey to both of you. Hi, Elsa. Hey. Hey. Okay, so let's start with you, Franco. What was the White House position at this meeting with the Chinese ambassador today? You know, this is all part of a formal diplomatic protest, you know, condemning the escalating tensions. John Kirby, the spokesman for the National Security Council, told us this afternoon that the White House is trying to keep the lines of communication open. But he blamed China for the tensions, for using Pelosi's visit as an excuse for these exercises. Here's a bit how he described it. There's nothing here for the United States to rectify. The Chinese 
uh, can go a long way to taking the, the tensions down simply by stopping these provocative military exercises and ending the rhetoric. And he said the administration won't back down, and the United States has left an aircraft carrier in the region to monitor the situation. But he also said that the administration is delaying some ballistic missile tests that the United States had planned in order to prevent further misinterpretation. Okay, Emily, can you just catch us up here on like all the different ways China has been retaliating so far after Pelosi's trip to Taiwan? There's a lot. They've just uh, responded on the diplomatic front, and they've also responded on a military front. So diplomatically in Beijing, the foreign ministry of China has summoned the U.S. ambassador there to dress him down. China's also uh, summoned ambassadors from the G7 countries, notably Japan. But the much more serious and alarming retaliation has been on the military front. China's in the second day of these military drills in six zones that, if you look on a map, completely encircle Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And these zones are chosen to block access to Taiwan's key airports and naval ports. There's also been 10 Chinese destroyers sailing around Taiwan, dozens of Chinese fighter jets flying around the Taiwan Strait, and some of these planes, Taiwan says, are actually crossing the median dividing line onto Taiwan's side of the strait. Wow. But most alarmingly, Taiwan says China has test-fired at least 11 missiles that landed in waters around Taiwan. China and Taiwan technically are still in the middle of a civil war, but the last time missiles were fired towards Taiwan was in 1996, but they didn't land nearly as close to Taiwan as they did this week. I mean, how much more intense are we expecting this to get? Because this week, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, told NPR that he hopes China, quote, avoids the kind of escalation that could lead to a mistake or miscalculation. How much is China threatening escalation right now, Emily? They say there is a risk. It's put out an eight-point list today, cutting off what few remaining threads of U.S.-China cooperation still existed. And today, Jing Quan, a Chinese foreign ministry official in Washington, warned there could be more escalation. We have uh, pointed out that it is the U.S. side that is the troublemaker for peace and the stability of the Taiwan Strait and the region. It should not take escalating actions and make further mistakes. This is to avoid pushing China-US relations down the dangerous track of conflict. You've mentioned already these sanctions against Nancy Pelosi and her immediate family, but among other sanctions, China says it is cutting down any calls between defense leaders of the two countries. And this Mm. is really risky because during tense regional um, situations, analysts do say a high level of communication between military leaders and political leaders is key to preventing further escalation. But right now, there's no clear way forward because China's projecting this conflicting message. They say they want cooperation with the U.S., but they've now cut off all remaining channels. I mean, it's very confusing sometimes. Uh, Franco, something I've been wondering, did the White House actually approve of the speaker's visit? Like, were they happy with her going? <laughs> I mean, officially, the White House says that she had every right to make the trip. But there's no question that it made things more complicated. I mean, for days, John Kirby has been telling reporters that the U.S. policy on Taiwan has not changed. That policy is to acknowledge Beijing's view that it has sovereignty over Taiwan, even as the U.S. considers the island's status to be unsettled. But high-profile visits like that of Pelosi also send confusing signals. You know, the United States does have unofficial relations with Taiwan. It does a lot of trade with Taiwan. It sells weapons to Taiwan. And overall is a big champion of its democratic way of government. 
And Biden also has repeatedly said the U.S. would come to Taiwan's defense if China attacked, though he's had to walk those statements back. Well, okay. something that I'm also curious about that we've mentioned already is the White House is saying it wants to keep lines of communication open with China. But I understand now, like some of the communication between the U.S. military and China's military has stopped. So how can these two sides actually keep talking? Yeah, the White House says there's still some communication going on between the two militaries. But Kirby says it is important that they be able to pick up the phone easily when needed. And China has cut off some talks with the administration on key issues like climate. That's traditionally been a topic where the two governments have had some engagement. And, you know, the White House hit back, charging Beijing with not just punishing the United States, but also punishing the world. John Kirby did express some optimism that the two superpowers would eventually resume some bilateral relations, but he said not now. He said the focus right now is on trying to reduce tensions in the Taiwan Strait. Well, Emily, where do you see the U.S.-China relationship going from here? It is at a complete standstill, even on issues that have zero connection to the tensions with Taiwan and China right now. Uh, that cooperation has stopped. For example, China said it was going to suspend all cooperation it had with the U.S. on combating narcotics enforcement, think fentanyl, much of mm-hmm. which is ingredients come from China still. So expect any other progress in spheres like the media or cultural cooperation to stop as well. And what's really worrying is that these two countries are talking past one another about what they think the issues really are. China, as you just heard, characterizes the problem as the U.S. treating Taiwan like a country, but the U.S. says the problem is Chinese coercion. Uh, I will note the only people who don't seem worried right now about tensions are people in Taiwan, because basically (laughs) everyone I know there has been saying, we welcome Pelosi's visit. We've been living with the threat of invasion from China for over 70 years, and we're not worried about war. That is NPR's Emily Fang and Franco Ordonez. Thank you to both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Elsa. If you think your prescription drugs are too expensive, or if it bothers you that they cost more in this country than practically anywhere else in the world, listen up. The Senate could vote as soon as tomorrow on the Inflation Reduction Act, the huge package hashed out by Democratic senators. And it includes some significant changes to drug pricing and health insurance. NPR health policy correspondent Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us more. Hey, Selena. Hi, Ari. What are the highlights of this bill? Well, for the first time, the U.S. health secretary would be able to directly negotiate the price of certain expensive drugs in Medicare. This only applies to a few drugs a year. It doesn't start until 2026. But health policy experts say this is a big deal. Medicare has never been able to negotiate the price of drugs before. Also in this bill, seniors won't have to pay more than $2,000 a year out of pocket on prescriptions. So that's going to help people with conditions like cancer and multiple sclerosis. And if drug companies raise the price of their drugs faster than inflation, they have to pay a rebate to Medicare. So that's going to hopefully keep drug companies from raising their prices over and over. That sounds like big news for Medicare, for senior citizens. What about for those of us who are not yet retirement age? Well, this affects all of us because it's going to save the government an enormous amount of money, almost $300 billion through 2031. That's according to the Congressional Budget Office. So that's money the government won't be giving to drug companies that can be used for other things like climate and clean energy and other big initiatives. And it's also going to help pay for federal subsidies that are making health insurance plans that people buy on the Affordable Care Act marketplaces actually affordable, living up to the name. 
These are the Obamacare exchanges that were set up after the Affordable Care Act passed, right? Exactly. So there's healthcare.gov, which is the federal marketplace, and over a dozen state-run marketplaces. So people who don't get insurance through work and don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid can just go into these marketplaces and buy a plan. Last year, because of the pandemic, Congress put billions of dollars towards essentially giving people discounts on their premiums. The Biden administration said four out of five enrollees qualified for plans that were $10 or less per month. That's, Hmm. you know, pretty affordable. And it seems to have made a difference. 14 million people signed up during open enrollment last fall. That is the most ever. And it's probably one of the reasons the percentage of Americans who are uninsured dropped to a record low in the first few months of this year. Only 8% of Americans are uninsured right now. That's the lowest it has ever been. It means 92% of Americans have health insurance. Wow, the highest percentage ever. So this bill is poised to pass with no Republican support. They're all expected to vote against it. What's the objection? Well, Republicans don't like these extra subsidies from the federal government. They say that it makes people too dependent on the government and that some of the people benefiting might be high income. But they especially object to the health secretary negotiating the price of drugs in Medicare. They say it's government price setting. And they argue that it will lead to fewer cures coming to market because it will reduce the revenue coming into drug makers that they can then use for research and development of new drugs. However, the Congressional Budget Office estimates only about 1% of drugs that would be developed over the next 30 years won't come to market because of this reduced revenue. And voters really want to see Congress do something about the cost of prescription drugs and health insurance premiums. They don't seem to be buying these doomsday arguments. In a Kaiser Family Foundation poll from last fall on Medicare negotiation, 90 percent of Republicans agreed with the statement, quote, even if U.S. prices were lower, drug companies would still make enough money to invest in the research needed to develop new drugs. Ninety percent of Republicans said that. Yes. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm Steve Brown, 77 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, Republican candidates for public office are now commonly refusing to grant access to reporters from mainstream national news media, often speaking to friendly partisan press instead. That's just ahead here on WBUR. In business news, on the same day it was announced iRobot will be bought by Amazon, the Bedford company is reporting it will cut its worldwide workforce by 10%. That's 140 employees. As part of the effort to cut costs, iRobot says it's going to move some of its operations to regions where it says business operations will be cheaper. iRobot, which makes the Roomba vacuum, indicates it is keeping its engineering operations here in Massachusetts. Wall Street stocks were mixed. The Dow finished up 67 points at 32,794. NASDAQ fell 67 points at 12,653. Marketplace is coming up in about 10 minutes here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And Boston Lights, enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advanced tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. 
Chance of showers and thunderstorms before 9 tonight. Otherwise, mostly cloudy. The lows will be around 74 degrees. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. For decades, conservatives have perceived the mainstream press as biased against them. Donald Trump dubbed reporters the enemy of the people. And this year, a lot of Republicans running for office are simply shunning mainstream press on the campaign trail. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben has more. I went to Wisconsin in June to report on how abortion is affecting primaries there. The idea was to do one story on the Democrats and one on the Republicans. Long story short, after phone calls, emails, Facebook messages, I heard back from the Democrats, but not the Republicans. The top GOP governor candidates posted no events, though their social media showed they were out talking to voters. And so, when I happened to catch the top two GOP governor candidates walking in an Oconomowoc July 4th parade, I hurried to the end of the route. I found former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish greeting supporters. Her staff started brushing me back, so I called her name. I'm sorry. No, Governor Clayfish! Excuse me. Oh, sorry. We're not doing any questions. I know you've been in contact with our communications director, Alec. That would be the best way. I'm sorry about that. Every possible way. I'm sorry about that. Um, he just took Eric. So sorry. I'm sorry. Can you tell him to get back to me? Yes. He did not, and a day later, at a publicly advertised event for Republican Kevin Nicholson, a staffer told me I wouldn't be allowed to record the candidate. As standalone anecdotes, these might not be a huge deal. However, they are also part of a trend of Republican candidates ignoring or actively avoiding legacy media, particularly national outlets. Pennsylvania Republican gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano kept the press out of a rally this spring. Reporters pressed the venue owner on why they couldn't get in. They don't want any media in, into the facility. Can you just tell us who they is? The campaign? The Mastriano campaign. Yes. Told you that. Like if I had a wedding and a whole bunch of these came in for the wedding, well, we I'd stop you here too. They're not running well. for They're not running for the There's a difference. But still, it's a private event. It's not a. It's a public office. Recently, the Florida GOP barred many mainstream outlets from the party's Sunshine Summit, but allowed in conservative outlets. Dave Weigel is the author of the Washington Post's campaign newsletter, The Trailer, and was not allowed in. If uh, one person from the campaign tweeting a photo from inside the room and talking about how great the view is that journalists can't see, most people who will not answer my basic questions, like, is there a recording of this event? <laughs> are taking the time to make fun of reporters for going there and getting engagement on Twitter for that. As the Republican base increasingly gets their news from right-leaning news sources, Republican candidates increasingly grant access primarily to those sources, meaning fewer news outlets can provide a broad view of American politics, not to mention scrutiny. It is entirely true that Democratic candidates also dodge questions and have private events. It's also true that GOP distrust of media is decades old. Vice President Spiro Agnew, for example, famously lambasted media coverage of Richard Nixon in 1969. But to Weigel, something is different this year. In this cycle, I've started to see more Republican candidates avoiding the press, blocking the press from events, and taking advantage of the fact that there's conservative media that will ask different questions and has a different audience. Um, so I'm obviously not <laughs> saying to the world, stop talking to the media. I'm saying, just objectively, there is a media infrastructure 
built up so that you don't need, if you're a Republican candidate, to talk to us. Scott Jennings, a Republican strategist and CNN commentator, said there's a cost-benefit analysis in talking to the press. He asked, what is the benefit of doing a potentially adversarial interview with an outlet you find biased? The possibility that you might end up saying something that winds up in $10 million worth of ads from the other side. <laughs> you know, it's like the benefit of doing the interview does not outweigh the risk. And so you just don't do it. And in this cycle, that can mean avoiding any number of tough questions about January 6th or abortion, for example. Polling data shows a wide media trust gap. Just 11 percent of Republicans trust the mass media, compared to nearly 7 in 10 Democrats, according to Gallup. The question of liberal bias isn't something we can settle in a few minutes, and coming from a legacy media outlet, a claim that we aim to be unbiased would inevitably come off to some as, well, biased. But regardless, claims of liberal bias are themselves a political tactic. Case in point, Donald Trump. We are in a rigged system. And a big part of the rigging are these dishonest people in the media. And you can't find it at the Washington Post, the New York Times, because they're crooked, they're dishonest. CNN, how dishonest is CNN? Or the Washington Post, which I call a lobbying tool for Amazon. Okay, that's a lobbying tool for Amazon. And now that hostility to the media is central to many other Republicans' identities. Here's Jennings again. In the old days, you would go through this, and, and your assumption would be, well, if the national newspaper is putting a negative story out on it, we, we have to engage with it. Now, I think it's actually different in that you might engage, but you might also make the determination that if you're a Republican, well, if the New York Times runs a hit piece on me, that's a badge of honor. Mainstream news also doesn't have the broad reach it once did. If, say, the national evening news is losing eyes and ears to right-wing outlets, there's less reason for candidates to respond. There are nuances to this, though. It's not every candidate, and they're not avoiding every mainstream outlet. Many candidates are more likely to be friendly to local than national press, says Mark Harris, a Pennsylvania-based Republican strategist. The best thing you can still do is get a 6 o'clock local, you know, NBC, ABC, CBS TV news hit. Local TV is number one and local print is number two. NPR contacted several political reporters from around the country and found a range of experiences. One in Texas reported nothing out of the ordinary this year. A political reporter in Iowa said they're seeing some evidence of Republicans avoiding scrutiny, which from local press can often get at issues more immediate to voters' lives. Alex Burness, who recently left the Denver Post, said he sees a definite partisan difference. He described a recent event for Republican governor candidate Heidi Ganahl. They said at the onset, we're not taking any questions. And we in the little media area had a conversation before she went on, like, well, why are we here, right? Like, I'm, we're not here to give PR. That kind of question is important for reporters to consider, says Khadija Costley-White, a professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. Is it important to have voices, regardless of whether or not they're using that opportunity as a way to distribute disinformation or misinformation? Is that valuable to democracy? All of this may come off as, boo-hoo, the GOP won't talk to reporters. But many, including Jennings, are concerned about what this all means for accountability. You know, I'm a Republican communications guy and engage with the traditional media and am on CNN. So I, I say I say this with all sincerity. We have to have a trusted press and it's necessary. Like it's necessary to democracy. However, candidates aren't incentivized to talk to the press because democracy. They talk because it serves their interests. The question is where this all leads. Here's Weigel again. 
look, I'm not saying how dare they do this. I'm interested in where this is going. If we're returning to the days when Democrats have one newspaper, Republicans have another newspaper, we might not like that, but there's precedent for it. At any rate, I never did do that piece on Wisconsin Republicans. I simply didn't have enough people to talk to me. If that's true for enough outlets, it means uneven coverage of the two parties and an electorate that has to work ever harder to be fully informed. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Innuendo, the Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is August 13th. Hunter Douglas automated power view shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And the Museum of Science, discover something new each time you visit. Summertime is limited, though your experiences at the Museum of Science are not. Tickets at mos.org.